Well, amen. Today is November 10th. It is 2019. We'll get to our title here in a minute. I, uh, I wanted to express a profound thanks to this congregation. It's uh, normal that, you know, when pastors start messages that they try to be gracious. Uh, that's not me. Uh, I'm not trying to be gracious. I genuinely feel gratitude in my heart for what the Lord has built in your lives. And um, I just got back from Israel, and there were 16 One Association pastors and elders on that trip. And uh, they all worked hard. They all sacrificed to be there. But the truth is, is more than half of them could not have been there without the support of this congregation. You helped to fund them. And uh, in ways that they don't even know, uh, meals that were picked up, tickets that were subsidized, things that were done. We had over 40 teachings together at biblical sites. Uh, we covered the north part of the land, the south, the west, the east. We touched every major body of water. Your investment in those pastors will reap eternal rewards for both you and all of their Talmudim. I don't know any way uh, to express to you the impact that it made on them. Some of them, I actually think, will wake up in six months and realize they learned even more than they thought they did. But they were all very, very grateful. Our message today is entitled, Chiseled. You know, unless you're a craftsman, uh, the way that you've probably interacted with this word is in describing someone. Like, I don't know. Stand up for me, Cody, just for a minute. Like, you know, that guy is chiseled. Meaning strongly or clearly defined features. Yeah, chiseled. Of course, if you're a craftsman, you would use the word chiseled to describe the process of hewing or shaping a material. Like a sculptor that would remove the excess from something. Uh, ironically, the process of chiseling, it, it involves heavy strikes to a super-hardened tool to make deep impressions in something. Chiseled is one of those uh, words that ought to bring to mind very graphic images of the force that it requires to do that, not just chiseled good looks. I want to begin today in Exodus, having given you the title. So let's go to Exodus 31. We'll be in verse 18. Chiseled. Chiseled. Yeah, girls, you can look at your husband and say, get chiseled. Come on now, you got to speak the word of faith. If he's shoving a donut in his pie hole right now, soon you'll find out we're talking about a different kind of chiseled. In Exodus 31, 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Now, I want to submit to you that many of you may have these two tablets, a replica in your house. They're all wrong, but you, you have them. The original tablets are inscribed on both sides. They're, of course, in Hebrew, not King James English. And um, we've been taught to look at these in a certain way for a couple thousand years. And that, 
Well, Proverbs 18:17, for instance, says that the one who presents his case first seems right until someone comes forward and questions him. We've had 2,000 years of virtually unquestioned preaching about what the law is. Did you notice in this verse he calls the two tablets on which, of course, the mitzvot, the commandments are written. He calls them the tablets of testimony. Testimony. That word is something that we're going to get into more in Hebrew. First and foremost, the law is a testimony. Now, if David Hall stands up and begins to share his testimony, you wouldn't look at David and go, that's legalistic, it's a yoke around my neck, how dare you bind me up with all of that? We generally think of a testimony as something that's liberating, unless, of course, it's God's testimony. And then we have the audacity to refer to it in ways that the Bible really doesn't. The tablets of stone inscribed by what? The finger of God. So we've noticed that the law is called the testimony. We've also, from this verse, noticed that it is inscribed by the very finger of God. Everybody hold up your finger. Thank you so much for making it your pointer finger. I very much appreciate that. It just depends on the crowd that you're in. I want to read you something. And I want to preface what I'm reading to you by the fact that I really like this guy, okay? And I really like you. I'm no less difficult or hard on the people I like than the ones that I don't like. That is a sign of love. The man that I'm going to read to you about, he had an excellent beard. And he talks a lot about trying to grow his beard. Uh, it's a part of his personal life. He also loves cigars. He happens to be referred to as the Prince of Preachers. His name is Charles Spurgeon. And I think the world of Charles Spurgeon... But he's clearly wrong in the passage I'm going to read you. This is his devotional, and it is referencing Matthew 11:28. Matthew 11:28, of course, begins with the words, come unto me. Are you all with me this morning? Yes. Okay, so here's what the Prince of Preachers says about that, fra- that phrase. The cry of the Christian religion is the gentle word, come. The Jewish law harshly said, Go take heed unto thy steps, as to the path in which thou shalt walk. Break the commandments, and thou shalt perish. Keep them, and thou shalt live. The law was a dispensation of terror, which drove men before it as with a scourge. The gospel draws with sweet bands of love. Jesus is the good shepherd going before a sheep, bidding them follow him and ever leading them onwards with the sweet word. Come, the law repels, the gospel attracts. Now, this man was the prince of preachers. I, I glean from him every day. He often re-wets the dryness of my soul. We do not throw out the baby with the bathwater. In fact, he loved Israel and he commented many times that he would prefer to see Israel saved. He even talked about it in in regard to his death. You know, it's one of the only things he regretted was not yet getting to see Israel made a nation. And in the 1860s, he said that it would happen. So he had many things right. And yet, can you hear the negativity about the law of God here? Yeah, Yeah. this is 2000 years of something that um, preachers have beat into the ground that I simply do not find justification for in the word. It is a serious misunderstanding. So I, I simply wanted to now introduce to you a topic. The law is called the testimony of God. That word is Strong's number 5715. It's 
edut. Now, edut means testimony, of course. I looked in some of your Bibles before we came up here, and it was also witness. When you look at this word, it comes from a root that is just uh, an aleph and a dalit. Usually, roots in Hebrew have three letters. This one only has two. When you remove the vowels, it can mean eternity. When the vowels are in it, it, of course, means testimony. But the root and the word together, they speak of something that you have seen with your eyes and you are bearing witness or testimony to. And it is not a one-time act. It is an ongoing perpetual thing. Vine's Expository Dictionary says to speak and to speak again and a continual attestation. In other words, the law of God is not a testimony that happened once and never again. It is something that is eternal, ongoing, and continuously speaking. Now go with me to Deuteronomy 9 and verse 10. Say there when you're there, I'm going to require you to speak to me this morning. If I can get off of a plane 24 hours ago and be jet lagged and preach, you, you can talk to me this morning. I just did foundations 44 times in Israel. It was, it was no big deal, I promise. Deuteronomy 9 in verse 10. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of assembly. Now I'm saying this because here... Instead of simply saying that they were the tablets of testimony, he goes ahead and says that the mitzvot, the commandments were on them. This lets you know that the testimony and the commandments, the written law, are in fact synonymous terms. You all following me so far? God's testimony is his law. Again, the testimony commands or law are inscribed by something. The very finger of God. There are not very many things in the Bible that are inscribed by the finger of God. I want to share with you something that we find in Luke 11. Let's pick up in verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. Pay careful attention to verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When talking about the kingdom of God in its power, talking about the kingdom of God manifest, The same language as the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy is used. The law was inscribed by the finger of God. The kingdom of God shows up in power as God's finger pointing from the heavens and touching something on earth. You're getting the picture now? Let's look at a parallel passage in Matthew 12 and verse 25. Will you uh, grant me that verses 25 through 27 are exactly the same as what we have just read in Luke? In verse 28, 28, there we go. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come on you. Did you hear a wording change here? 
When talking about the kingdom of God and power, you can say finger of God, and finger of God is completely synonymous with spirit of God. They are the same thing. The law and the commands are and always have been God's testimony. And it is is being inscribed, has been and still is being inscribed by God's finger or his spirit. Now, what do we call the written word of God? It's the word of God. And his spirit is what inscribes it. Do you see what is wrong with juxtaposing the spirit and the word? Acting as if they are opposite things that they could ever be opposed to each other, or that you could be in one and not in the other, the very written word of God is written by the Spirit or finger of God. It is an act of the Spirit's power that gives us the written law. It is impossible for the written law to be against the Spirit or the moving of the Spirit. The written law is a product of the Spirit. Now, if you read an epistle that leads you to believe something else, read it again. You've misunderstood it. Somebody's approach to the law could be against the spirit, but the law itself could never be against the spirit. The law and the commandments are a product of the powerful spirit of God. Now, I want to get into a passage that's been abused and misunderstood by Christians for two millennia. And I promise this will not be a theological exercise. This will come home to you in a very, very real way. Let's all go to Exodus 32. And when you get to verse 15, yell out, chiseled. Chisel my chisel. Come on, chiseled. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony. That's the edut, the eternal, ongoing, eyewitness kind of testimony. With the two tablets of testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. The testimony on these tablets is called the work of God. Of course, all testimonies are the work and workings of God, aren't they? They should be. The inscription of this testimony was performed by the finger of God or the Spirit of God. All testimonies ought to be the workings of God as the Spirit of God is inscribing them right into your life, writing your story. But when we're reading about the tablets, when we're reading about the testimony, we're reading not about your testimony, we're reading about God's testimony. This is not the testimony of Moses. This is the testimony of God, of His character, of His nature, of His workings. We are reading about God's testimony. Pick up in verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Joshua's a warrior, and to him, because he's a hammer, everything looks like a nail. He hears the sound of rustling, and it's, it's got to be war. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. 
It's not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear, or some translations would say blasphemies that I hear. Verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets. That's the tablets of God's testimony. He threw them out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. You know, the Jewish sages have a very interesting story about this that may or may not be true, but I find it practically useful. Moses is carrying the tablets and he's having no problem coming down the mountain until the tablets of God's testimony see the sin of the people. And then the law that was light and was free and a a 80-year-old man is carrying with no problem suddenly became too heavy for him to bear. Sin makes the law that way, doesn't it? Of course, sin makes your testimony that way too. You stand up and talk about how Jesus has set you free and all Jesus has done for you, and then your behavior is full of sin. What does that make your testimony? Heavy as all get out, hard to bear. The very thing that you were talking about, freedom in your life, now is an indictment against you. We are so accustomed to this story that we begin to think of it as the story of the broken law, the broken commands. It is all of those things. But the unique twist here is that the tablets are God's testimony. They are God's work. They are God's writing by God's very finger, His Spirit. We are missing that this is His testimony at stake. It is not the people's testimony at stake. This is not a statement about the people It's a statement about the people's God. No commandment is written that says the Israelites are thus and so. The commandments begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. They are a testimony about God, not a testimony about the people, at least not yet. Let's then go to Exodus 34. Are y'all still with me this morning? I love that this is a church that is scripture hungry. You are going to get your fill today. In Exodus 34, beginning in verse 4. Chiseled. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. We are obviously in a second event here that is being described. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and he went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. Why is he doing this? The Lord has commanded him. The Lord wants his testimony on the earth. The Lord wants a record of his testimony, and he gives it to a people to bear. The Lord commands him. He chisels out stone, and he is walking up the mountain. He carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Now, the first tablets were created by God on the mountain. You may not have caught that in our first passage. God chiseled out the actual stone tablets that they were on in the first story. In the second story, it requires Moses to chisel out stone tablets like the first one, and he brings them to God who inscribes upon them. The second time that the man presented the tablets to God on the mountain, he had to carry them. There's a lesson in this for us that I don't want to preach about today because I've preached about it before. But let me just say it is something when God regenerates you. 
That is a beautiful thing. And for some reason, people like to talk about the way they were lost, and then they came to the point of regeneration, and that's where their testimony stops. But that's a that's an absolute utter lie. If that's where your testimony stopped, then the very first time you broke any command, the very first time that you transgressed the faith that you say you had, your story would be over. We are required to present ourselves back before the Lord. The first time it's entirely His work. Nothing of you in it. The second time it requires you to approach Him with tablets in hands that says, I've broken these. I've messed these up. Now let me ask you, how many times did you get regenerated or saved that are what theologians would call salvation? Once. How many times have you had to be re-inscribed? Thousands. Why is your testimony about the time that you first were regenerated and not about the thousands of times since? Because you've made salvation a legal transaction instead of a relationship. The greater majority... You asked Charlie Brown about his testimony and he's not going to spend time telling you that he was once in a few dark places like many of you live. He's going to tell you about the 50 years of progress that God has made in his life. See, a testimony is about what God has done since you were regenerated, not what was done to get you regenerated. Then the Lord came down. I'm in verse 5. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Carlos, let me hear that name. Yehovah. Or if you like Yahweh, we'll argue about that all day long. But for this morning, for my friend Carlos, I'm going to say Yehovah. He says in verse 5, he proclaimed his name, Yehovah. What's verse 6 say? And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yehovah, Yehovah. Now if he said it in verse 5, and he says it two more times in verse 6, how many times does he say it? Three times. It's almost as if we have a full manifestation of the Godhead here. Was this proclaimed in this way when the law was first given? Or after it was broken and a man had to come back up on the mountain to be reinscribed? See, you think the greatest part of your testimony is that you got saved. And the greatest part of your testimony should be everything that has happened as a result of salvation. Not that you were saved once initially, but the many thousands of times he's had to rescue you ever since. Viewing Israel as being broken and cut off from God and this story being about them failing with a golden calf has caused us to view even the salvation we share in incorrectly. Your salvation is not about something that happened to you in the past. Your salvation is about something that is ongoing as a testimony in your life today and every day thereafter. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Man, this sure sounds like a dispensation of terror. Sounds like harshness. Or 2,000 years of preaching was just misdirected. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. He does punish, but it's not all He does. 
Do you think that's changed in the Newer Testament? Have you ever read the letters to the seven churches of the book of Revelation? I want to put a, 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 a picture on the screen. It's the only visual aid I'm going to show you all day. When Moses brings the tablets of the testimony of God, not of man, the testimony of God up to him, God himself proclaims his own name three times. Would that get your attention? I mean, in a lot of places in the world, we can't say Jehovah three times in a row like that. I mean, that would make people uneasy. Do you think it got Moses' attention? And then he proclaims out of God's own mouth, God proclaims seven attributes of God. Compassionate. Surely that's a reign of terror, right? Gracious. Surely that's harsh, right? Slow in anger. Definitely that's about binding you up with your sin and, 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 uh, holding you back as a people, right? Yeah, if you can't detect my sarcasm, then you really need to wake up. (laughs) Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, let's, let's get this one. Abounding in faithfulness. Now, here's a big one. Number six, six, maintaining love. Man, is that good news? Number seven, forgiving wickedness. Now, there are all kind of associations with the feast and all kind of beautiful things that can be done here, but we're not going to do that. These are the attributes of God that he himself stated to Moses. So are they contestable? No, if God said it and it's recorded, then we ought not be able to look at this and make it say something other than what it says. This is after the tablets, the law, or the commands had been broken. This is not before and then they were broken. This is after they were broken. This is after a people, hear this, that were already redeemed. They were redeemed in the Passover. The already redeemed people had failed greatly. And what does God show up and say? I am the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I am compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love, and forgiving wickedness. Does that sound to you at all oppressive? This is God's testimony after the people had failed. Their failure only served to illustrate God's actual testimony. See, in the first giving of the law, what we have is a statement about God's character. But without them having been fractured, having been broken, you wouldn't have these seven statements about God. Even Israel's failure serves us. How many of you are happy to find out that after failure, he's compassionate? How many of you are happy to find out after your failure, he's gracious? How many of you want him to be slow to anger? How about abounding in love? Anybody happy that he is faithful even when you're not? Anybody happy that he maintains his love to you? How about that he forgives wickedness? So many years of preaching have juxtaposed these things to the Newer Testament. They're not juxtaposed to the Newer Testament. The Newer Testament stands on top of them and you can't have it without them. If you remove compassion, do you have a New Testament? If you remove grace, do you have a New Testament? If you remove slowness, dang, which one of these is not also a Newer Testament principle? See, God has never changed. His testimony is always the same. Now, before we get into the meat of the matter, let's pick up in verse 8. I simply want you to understand before verse 8 that this is not opposed to the gospel. 
It is the very foundation on which the gospel itself stands, and the gospel cannot stand without it. Moshe bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. That's an interesting response. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us, although this is a stiff-necked people. See, he can be forgiving, he can be gracious, he can be compassionate, and still call it exactly like it is. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Pick up in verse 10. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Does anybody catch this? Didn't he make a covenant with them in Exodus 6 to bring them out? Didn't he make a covenant with them in Exodus 12 when he brought them out? Didn't he make a covenant with them in Exodus 20? How many covenants does he make? In fact, some translations here will say, I will make a covenant with you. In other words, the expression of God's testimony is all of his characteristics and that he will keep making the covenant with the people. Oh man, if you don't see that as good news, you haven't thought through how this relates to you. Well, I'm in covenant with the Lord. Yes, have you broken it? Then how do you know that he still loves you? Because we know his character and his testimony as given to us by the Jewish people. He wrote it in stone, not just once, but twice. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never done before in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Now, when you read that, name something the Lord did that was awesome. Name it. Oh, yeah, split the Red Sea. Except that's already happened, Bim. He's saying what he will do for them in the future. He is not saying what he has done for them in the past. We are not talking about works up to salvation. We are talking about the work he would do for them subsequent to salvation. See, there is a problem in Christianity. We think the mightiest thing that ever happened to us is the day that we got saved. And so we talk about when we were saved in 1972, when we were saved in 1984. The testimony of God is not that you got saved. It's what you've done since you have been saved. His testimony is that he continues. Put those on the screen for me, Joy. That he continues to be compassionate to the people he saved. That he continues to be gracious to the people he saved. That he continues to be slow to anger. That he continues to abound in love. That he continues faithfulness. That he maintains his love to those that he has redeemed. And he forgives their wickedness. Now look, if you're not getting me yet, let's just put it into perspective. Spence, have you fallen on your face since you've been in Christianity? Yes, he has, but that's not the end of his story because this is our God. The story that he fell on his face is not how the story will be told. The story will start with his salvation, his inclusion in the kingdom. And from there, all that he overcame because of the great testimony of God, all that he went on to do because of the testimony of God. Now, I was a a violent teenager. I was sexually impure. I was all of those things. But when you think about it, that is a blip in the story. He spoke to me, and for 26 years, he's been accomplishing things through me. That is the testimony, not what happened before it. 
If the greatest day of your life is when you got saved, you have misunderstood the Bible. Remembering that this verse, I'm going to read it to you again. I am making a covenant. Not I did. I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. In other words, the ten plagues of Egypt, the Passover, that's going to pale in comparison to what I will do because I am making another covenant with you. When you think on what that might be. Let me just give you an example from Exodus 16. Are you all all right with that? Even if you're not, it's exactly what I'm going to do. Exodus 16 says 600,000 men were on foot when they came out of Egypt. If you consider then that there are 600,000 women, because it's not good that man be alone, and that when men and women are together in a monogamous relationship before the Lord, they're fruitful and multiply. So let's give every man a wife and let's give every man and wife three children just as an average. If you, don't, if you think that's too aggressive, go to the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem today and tell me we're not vastly undershooting the number of children that these people have. That makes three million people that we're speaking about in Exodus 16. And every single day God provided an omer of manna for them. That's a little more than two liters of manna. Anybody see a two liter? Okay, I know some of you have with some potato chips in front of a lazy boy. That's not the way to get chiseled. If there's three million people receiving two liters per day, that's six million liters of manna every single day. If you don't understand liters, because we're Americans and we don't like, uh, we, we, we simply don't like the European system. Let's convert them to gallons. That would be um, 3.7. That, that gives us 1.5 million gallons of manna every day. Anybody in here had to cook for a bunch of people? Every week, 11 million gallons of manna. Every month, 48 million gallons of manna. Every year, 577 million gallons of manna. You impressed yet? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? So let's put it into tanker cars. Okay, just like a tanker car you see going down the road. The average semi that has, say, gasoline in it, a tanker, holds 9,000 gallons. So you need 176 of them every day to deliver food to Israel. You need 1,232 every week. You need 5,342 every month. And you need over 64,000 every year. Now, a semi is about 70 feet long. So if you make a line of them for what it would take annually to feed Israel, it stretches across Texas from east to west. That's what God did to the people, for the people, after the golden calf incident. Tell me that the Lord has abandoned you. Tell me that because while I'm preaching, I have nailed some area of your life that you're tempted to be offended with. Tell me that because you haven't had a promise fulfilled yet, tell me that because in the moving of the Spirit, you were put in a corner and felt like you just had no chance but to change and you're fighting back and forth with anger, tell me that God's given up on His testimony in you. No, this is the beginning of making a covenant with you. You're, what we have to get liberated from is that when you got saved, everything was done. No, when you got saved, you were born 
born. Itty bitty tiny little baby, born. And every time you find an area that must change, that has to change, that is being highlighted, dear God, a pastor said, you're doing it wrong. You're finding a chance for him to make new the covenant and do greater wonders, greater works in you. And do you know where we learn that? We learn it because God did not, has not, and never will give up on Israel. The Lord did not give up on making a covenant with the people. He was in an ongoing covenant with the people. By the way, those 40 years in the desert, it's not just the amounts of food. It's, it's not that we had semi-trucks every year that would cross Texas. That's, that's really not it. On the sixth day, we also had a doubling. And on the seventh day, it ceased. 2,080 times that happened. That repeated. Consider then that we are seeing greater miracles in the desert after he is displeased with some of them than we saw when he actually redeemed them. His testimony is that he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, that he maintains love and he forgives wickedness. In the very midst of failure... He is still making a covenant and building, hear this, His testimony. See, this speaks about God more than it speaks about the people. One of the problems with our testimonies is it speaks more about us than it speaks about God. So, well, I used to do this and I used to do... Why don't you shut up with that? Why don't you just start saying what God is now doing through you? Wouldn't that be a better testimony? After all, when you say all of the wicked things that you used to do, you're talking to someone who is just as wicked and did all of the same things. You end up trading wicked stories. Our testimony is not what happened until we got saved. Our testimony is that after getting saved, although we have been stiff-necked, although we have failed to understand, although we fall on our face, although we get offended, although that we get depressed, although we are faithless, He is still working in us and is building something that says about His goodness. Now, I've I've come back from being gone and and Pastor Wade, he he killed it. He did a great job. And so many have, have grown and And I mean, I heard glorious testimonies for hours yesterday about the amazing things. Others failed miserably. I'm a pastor. It's it's what we talk about all day. We hope that those that are succeeding outnumbers those that failed miserably. Over the scope of time, though, what you see is that God is causing all who will trust him to overcome more and more and more. That is building his testimony. Say, so, well, so-and-so's a little upset. Yeah, but they're less upset than they were last year. You know? So, so-and-so stumbled. Well, that's good because they broke their neck last year. Okay? We are seeing something growing. And I can feel the momentum growing in here. I want to encourage you to grow with it. Let's go to Deuteronomy 10. Surely you're not upset with me yet, huh? Okay, I still have, you know... An hour or so for that. Deuteronomy 10. If you're in verse 1, somebody say chiseled. So funny, my little girl would get in the mirror with her hairbrush and, you know, fluff her hair and sing when she was very small. Certainly not now. My boys would get in the mirror and raise their shirt and flex, you know, chiseled. Still do. 
Deuteronomy 10.1, God is still building his testimony among us. At that time, now I want you to keep in mind that we are writing Deuteronomy 10 40 years after the events, before they go into the promised land, looking back at them. That's why we're saying at that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also, make a wooden chest. Friends, think through that for a minute. When was the ark made? Was it before or after the law was broken? See, the law was given, and when it was given, the designs for the ark were given at the same time. So Moses is walking down, probably with a set of blueprints under his arm and a couple tablets, and it gets very heavy because of the sin of the people, and he throws them down. You know what was not there? An ark. They didn't have the ark until he goes back up to have the tablets re-inscribed. I know all of you knew that. The ark was not present when Moses came off the mountain the first time. He had just received the plans for it, so it could not have been built yet. The ark has three names in Scripture. The ark of God, the ark of the covenant, and the ark of the testimony. Verse 2. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then you are to put them in the chest. How did God write them? Well, he wrote them with his finger the same way he did the first time. His finger is his spirit. His spirit re-engraves them. The tablets, law, commands, and God's testimony that went into the ark was the second set, not the first. Say, well, what difference does that make? Well, at the first, we do not have God showing up saying, I am put it on the screen, Joy. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love, forgiving wickedness. He didn't say that at the first giving of the law. He said it after they had been broken. The testimony that goes into the box is... The law of God along with his seven attributes proclaimed on the mountain. Now, when you consider that, that means that what they're carrying around all of the time is a wholly different kind of testimony than we've been taught that it is. It's a testimony that says... Our God has shown us His character, but He is also compassionate and gracious, and He's slow to anger. He abounds in love. He's faithful. He maintains His love, and He forgives wickedness. That is a part of God's testimony that was carried on the ark of God, on the ark of the covenant that He made, is making, and will make. It is His ongoing testimony. Now, why is that so good to hear? Well, aside from the hope that it gives all Jewish people, it gives you hope too. Because if any of you have fouled up since you got saved, you might want to know that when you do not measure up, he is still compassionate. He is still gracious. He still forgives. The testimony that we carry around is not that we were lost and then praise God, we got saved. 
the testimony we carry around is I was born again and many times I have felt, still fallen short, but he is overcoming inside of me. I used to be easily offended, but not anymore. I used to be prone to depression, but not anymore. I used to find it hard to wait on the promise of God, but now I love to build a testimony. His testimony is growing in us. It wasn't finished at conception. Well, imagine what will happen when we get to verse 2. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you are to put them in the chest. What goes in the chest is the renewed tablets, not the broken ones. Verse 3, so I made an ark out of acacia wood and I chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. Did you catch the order? He makes the container for them and then he brings the stones up on the mountain for God to inscribe. God wanted to put his testimony inside of something. Now talk to Matthew, maybe tonight he'll tell you all about acacia trees. He had an amazing desert teaching on them. They, uh, they've got thorns. They even have poisonous bark. You have to do an awful lot of work to hammer something good into them. And I am hammering away right now. Let's do verse 4. The Lord wrote on the tablets what he had written before. There was no change in the law. There was only an expansion and understanding of God's goodness. The Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made as the Lord commanded me. And they are there now. The testimony that gets put into the ark of the testimony is not a dispensation of terror. The testimony that gets put into the ark of the testimony is not harsh. The testimony is not even about the failure of the people. It's about the compassion Grace, patience, love, faithfulness, ongoing love, and forgiving of wickedness of our God. That is what the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of God, Ark of the Testimony is actually about. The God of Israel is able to chisel into stone His strongly defined features. He's chiseled. He is able to hew away material that doesn't belong Revealing his masterful work in you. He reveals his image in a people that had hearts like stone. That's what he is able to do. That is his testimony. I want to address for a last time this false narrative. The false narrative is that the broken law went into the ark. And that the blood of Christ covered the broken law so that God couldn't see it and that this was an image of the way that we're saved. There's a problem with that. It's an unnecessary straw argument by misguided preachers. It's created to enhance the Newer Testament as if it needed help. Unfortunately, it makes God duplicitous. It makes Him a reign of terror in one time and, and graceful in another time. It's literally led to a Marcion heresy being expressed in the church today. That all we really need is the Newer Testament. He is one 
and he has always been one. He's had one plan and one people. They're the focus of his testimony and he's chiseling them out of stone and you got included in that plan. He hasn't given up on them and he won't give up on you. I want to remind you of a couple things before we move forward. We're 47 minutes in. Are you okay? Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to each other. Is that a command? Yeah. Same as the mitzvot. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices. See, it was chiseled away through crucifixion. And you have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. See, man was made in the image of God. Amen? Amen. But man is still being made into the image of God. Say, well, Adam was made in the image of God. No, he was made in the image and likeness, but it, it certainly wasn't perfect. God is perfecting his image and his likeness in us. That doesn't happen by changing his testimony. It's by persevering in his testimony. In fact, how about 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine? And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. See, his ongoing compassion, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, maintenance of his love and forgiveness, they're shaping his testimony into you. Are you disappointed with yourself? I get that way. And I know you do. I'm one of those guys that I am going to put you in a box and make you choose between good and bad. I'm going to offend you an awful lot of the time. I'm going to stomp on your toes. That is my calling. I didn't choose it. It's something that God gave me. When we're in the room together, eventually what is in your heart is going to come to the surface. But God also gave you chiseled pastors, good-looking pastors, amazing men who are patient with you and will work with you and guide you through it. Understand that when you find a flaw, something in your heart, you should not hate the one who's revealing it and you should not hate You found something that you now get to remove that's superfluous. It shouldn't be there. And you've just taken a step closer to the actual image of God. The problem with believing your testimony is everything that happened in your life up to the point of salvation is it leaves you nowhere to go. It leaves you no way to grow. It only condemns you when you don't live up to it. If instead... You would learn that your testimony is everything that's happened since you've been saved. You're looking for areas to grow. You're looking for ways to go beyond. You're happy when you find something that wasn't right in your life because now it gets to change. After all, God did more miracles after he redeemed the people than before he redeemed the people. Are you getting it? The greatest miracle in your life is not the day you got saved. The greatest miracle should be all of the things that are happening since you've been saved. See, that's a very practical word. It's worth applying. It should give you hope. I want to read you Exodus twenty-five sixteen in the NASB. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. This is all future tense. That's because it's being spoken before God re-inscribed this law. By the way, in the complete Jewish version, it says, into the ark you are to put the testimony which I am about to give you. Very interesting that in Exodus 25 he would say this, and he's already given the law in Exodus 20, and it's not until later in Exodus that we actually put something into the ark. See, God was not about laying out perfection and then saying, I'm so surprised 
You missed it. I'm going to testify about your error for eternity. That's not his testimony. His testimony is as bad off as his people were, he can make them into what he is. He didn't trade. He didn't find a new people. He's now not the God of the Norwegians. He's going to do it for Israel, and you are included with Israel in that transformation. When you hear a person's testimony, it's often all the wrong they did and then how they got saved. In other words, the church world, when it gives a testimony, is everything that happened to the point of salvation. This is less than half the truth, and it amounts to a whole lie. God did much, much more than redeem Israel from Egypt. This is not a transaction. It's an ongoing relationship. The actual testimony that Israel carried around in that box is not up to the point of salvation. It is from the point of salvation on to perfection. Listen, what will your testimony be? Well, if you stop short then that could be a problem. But if you don't stop short, if you don't plan, oh, where are you at, Mandy? Are you in here? Mandy. Mandini. <laughs> if you don't stop, sweetheart, then you will reach perfection. And you know, that's entirely up to you. Look, I know very well how difficult it can be. Okay? It's not as if I'm not being chiseled myself. The word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It ought to be cutting you all of the time. All of the time you ought to be seeing where letters need to be engraved deeper, where you made a mistake, where things need to change. In fact, you know, they say that Mount Moriah is the place. It's just legend, but it's an interesting one. They say Mount Moriah is the place that God reached down to grab the dust to make Adam out of. Say, so, well, what difference would that make? You know, maybe that's just Zionist Jews that love Moriah. Well, maybe it is. It also is probably true. But because that would be the very altar of God. And there needed to always be a connection between man and an altar. A man ought to always be repenting. He ought to always be being sculpted into all that God is. He is never done until God is finished with him. See, I find that a comforting message. I don't want to call that a reign of terror. I don't want to think of that as harsh. I think of it as a compassionate, gracious God who is constantly sculpting his people, of which I now, as a foreigner, have been included in. The actual testimony that God carried around in the ark is what he was doing in them towards perfection. The testimony is what God is doing for people that he has already redeemed. Not people that he's planning to redeem. The testimony is all the wonders happening after Egypt, not just during. Think through that. It's 1,500 years of testimonies after the Exodus and 2,000 years since the cross, and he's still doing it. His testimony is ongoing, and it's not done for them, and it's not done for you. That ought to give you hope, huh? Cho, yeah. that ought to give you hope. Are there some things you're still waiting for? Are there some things you want to see perfected in you? Well, climb the mountain and present the tablets of your heart to him and watch what he does with it. Amen. See, that is the message we learn from Israel. It is the Spirit of God inscribing his testimony for them, 
And of course they stumbled. So what did he do? He inscribed his testimony again. Now think through that with me. They failed, and what did he do? He did it for them again. Now am I the only one in here that needs it done one more time again, Lord? He does it again. The first time it was all his working. The second time you had to cut out stone and bring them to him. But he did it again. And then what did he want you to do? Carry the stones that said he did it again in a box for the whole world to see. Oh, my God. Yeah. Y'all are awful quiet about that. The ark that carries this kind of testimony. The ark that carries the kind of testimony that says, I failed, but he hasn't. I needed it done again, and he did it again. The ark that carries the kind of testimony that speaks about God's seven attributes, that kind of ark does amazing things. Are you ready for some of them? Now, I'm just going to shout them out to you. In Numbers 10.35, the ark of his testimony says, may your enemies be scattered, rise up, O Lord. This kind of testimony scatters the Lord's enemies. The kind of testimony that says, well, the law's broken, but something covers over it so it can't be seen, never scattered an enemy. The testimony that says God is able to renew them again, God is able to reinscribe them again, that scatters an enemy because he can't do anything to you that God can't undo. Moses used to say every time the ark was there, Rise up, O Lord! May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. What are they fleeing from? They're fleeing from the almighty testimony of God's nature displayed in His people. In Joshua 3, 14-17, the ark of the testimony cuts off the judgment waters of the Jordan. Oh, come on, man. How many times have oppressive thoughts risen around you? But the ark of the testimony of God's nature will cut it off. And you find yourself walking on dry land. In Joshua 6, 13 through 17, the ark of the testimony of God literally knocks down the walls of the enemy city. Have you ever found yourself barred from doing what God says you can do? But if you will dwell on His testimony, His ability to re-inscribe you again, His compassion, His goodness, His faithfulness, those walls will begin to crumble as you shout praise. See, what is carried in that box is everything. It's not just remediation of sin. It's the very character of God on display before all of humanity. In 1 Samuel 5, 2 through 5, the ark of the testimony decapitates Dagon and it breaks off his head and hands. Friends, what have you been dwelling on that is towering over you, keeping you from seeing God's presence? That the testimony of God, meaning that He can take you, even though you failed, and do more with you now than when He brought you from death into life. See, He does more for you after saving you than it took to save you. Oh man, Tom, thank you. Dear God, there's one man in the whole room that understands. 
It takes more from the moment you were saved to finish the walk than it took to actually get you saved. I don't know. I've watched some pretty bad attitudes in my lifetime. I've seen some things that I think if they just began to recount a testimony, they certainly couldn't be grumbling and complaining. If they just began to recount a testimony, we would see Dagon fall. I can't imagine watching Dagon fall and sitting there with a critical spirit, picking on everything that you see all around you, especially your brothers. If we learn to carry the right kind of testimony, you wouldn't need to be presented as perfect. Let's just be honest. We all know you're not perfect now. The testimony would be, look at what he's doing in me anyway. See, when you write off a whole people group, it has an unintended consequence to you. 1 Samuel 5, 9. The ark of the testimony breaks out against the enemies of the Lord. It's an incredible pain in their blessed assurance. 1 Samuel 5, 11 through 12. The ark of his testimony puts to death all who stand against it. Man, we've been talking about city gates. We've been talking about walking in his strength and how you carry that out. What kind of testimony are you carrying around? Could, could we not raise hands, but you actually think through this. When is the last time you were asked to give your testimony and it started with the cross and moved forward? Second Samuel 6, 6. The ark does not endure. The ark of his testimony does not endure irreverence. See, meditating on what he is doing in you, what he has always been doing, it leaves no room for irreverence for his presence. Second Samuel 6.16, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the testimony reveals the hearts of all who encounter it. Let's just be honest. We're in a prayer meeting and somebody stands up and says, God, forgive me. I acted wickedly today in my business and I must leave right now and go return money to someone. Doesn't that reveal the hearts of the people that are standing around listening? You know that it does. When you're embarrassed because that person did that, when you look down on the person that did that and you yourself have done the same thing, it reveals our hearts. When what rises in you says, glory to God, I see him as a great man of God and he's still having to improve and that gives me hope. See, that's what it means to carry the ark of the testimony. In Psalm 132, in verse 8, his testimony is literally his might. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. We cannot corrupt the testimony of God because his testimony is his strength at work inside of us. In 1 Chronicles 13, 14, his testimony blesses all who are around him. It blesses all who are around hearing the testimony. What would happen if we actually told our testimony? What if it's not when I was in seventh grade, I realized I was a wicked sinner and then I got born again. 
What if that's not what our testimony was? What if your testimony was from the moment that I was born of heaven? I was partly strong in the Lord and mostly weak in the Lord. And here are the areas I've been putting underfoot by his power. And every week, because I have anointed pastors like Pastor Matthew and Pastor Wade, they find a new one and they highlight it by the Spirit of God. And I hate it, but I also love it because I'm being perfected. What if that was our testimony? Maybe the world wouldn't look and hate Christians for being hypocrites. His testimony is not done until everything is accomplished that he said. His testimony is not complete until all that he said is done. Remember, the word for testimony is idut. 57.15 83 times it occurs in the Word in 57 verses. And the testimony is an ongoing attestation. It is not a one-time event. It's not that He did do it. It is that He did, He is, and He will do it. Oh, come on. How many of you want a testimony? We're going to flash a few passages on the screen as we come to a closing. I love the 1984 NIV for all of its imperfections. If you read these in the NASB, if you read them in the Amplified, every verse, I didn't even check the ESV because I don't want Caleb to beat up on me about it. And I'm certainly not going to give that to Pastor Massey. Every single one of these that the NIV says statute, the actual word is edut. It is testimonies. Psalm 19.7. If you just flash these for me, Joy. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes or the testimonies of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. God's testimony in you will take you from stupid to smart like that. Psalm 78, 5 through 6, he decreed statutes should be testimonies for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them. It's an ongoing testimony. It is not a legal statute to be passed down. It is a relationship of testimony to be passed down. Psalm 119, verse 14, I will rejoice in following your testimonies as one rejoices in great riches. This is the word. The word never changed. It is only a dynamic translation that turns it into legalese. Psalm 119, verse 31, I hold fast to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. Well, if his testimonies that he's gracious and compassionate and abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love and all then you understand, I hold fast to the testimony about you, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. That is entirely different than 2,000 years of preaching about the law. Psalm 119, verse 36. Turn my heart towards your testimonies and not towards selfish gain. Psalm 119, verse 88. Preserve my life according to your love and I will obey your testimonies of your mouth. Wow. Are you getting it yet? God's testimony is everything. Psalm 119 verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your testimonies. 
In Psalm 119, verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage. They are the joy of my heart. What God is doing, has done, and will do is the joy of your heart. Your testimony is not past tense. It is ongoing. Psalm 119, verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, I will obey them. Psalm 119, 144, your testimonies are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Psalm 119, verse 157, many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your testimonies. See, when I'm walking around the Jewish quarter and I see men that are still holding on to the testimony that says God will save Israel and they've been thrown out of every nation and they've gone through a holocaust and they can be picked out in any nation because of the unique identity covenant God gave them, I see men that are holding to a testimony. Still need to see Messiah, but are yearning for a Messiah that most have never actually been presented with. And it gives me Hope, if they can be this tenacious and holding on to the testimony of God, surely we should be. Psalm 122, verse 4. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the testimony given to Israel. The reason that the seven feasts were obeyed in Israel is because they testified about God's plan for God's people. Amen. See, they're maintaining a testimony. Which brings us to you. Let's go to Revelation eleven thirteen together. Say there when you were there. I know I read you a lot of things. You've heard for many years things contrary to what I'm telling you, so I'm taking the opportunity to drive the nail deep. And undoubtedly somebody will still come up and say that you didn't get it or you disagree, to which I say meditate on the testimony for a little while. Go back and listen to it again. Maybe, maybe you've just been indoctrinated in a way that the Scripture doesn't teach and you need to immerse yourself in this a little bit. Revelation eleven thirteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within the temple was seen. Within the temple was seen. The ark of the covenant also called the ark of his testimony. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. I want you to get something from this. His testimony is intact in the heavens. But it must be completed on the earth. Are you following me? His ark of his testimony was seen in the heavens. But it must be seen on the earth in you. They're not replacements for each other. They're models of each other. Your life should be modeled after the ark and the ark should be a model that your life looks like. It should carry his testimony. This is true for Israel, but it's true for your life too. Let's go to Revelation 12, 11. We're an hour and ten minutes in and we will be done within ten minutes. Surely this is worth you contemplating a little bit, huh? They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their... Now how have you read this? Have you read this as 
They gave their testimony. I was pretty wicked guy. I did terrible things. I used to mainline coke. And then I got born again. And by the way, in the name of Jesus, by his blood, we overcome. No, no. It is that they triumph over him because of the blood of the lamb, their regeneration. And by the word of their testimony, what happened from the time they were born again until the time of the end? It's no testimony to describe how wicked you were. That's no testimony at all. That's an infantile testimony. It's a testimony that you give when you have no actual track record in the kingdom. It's, it's what you say when there's nothing to say that's happened in the kingdom. Again, I refer you to our elders. You ask them about their testimony. They tell you what God has done over 50 years. They don't tell you about the three years that they had that were yucky. Okay? God's testimony is being built in you. For it to be built, there have to be areas you still need to overcome in. And so God has given you pastors that put their finger on it for you because we want God's testimony built inside of you. We're not against you. We're not trying to bring you down. We're, we're not offending you for the purpose of offending you. We want to see God's name built in you. We want to see you like an acacia wood box that has been hammered into gold, carried around and leveling nations, splitting rivers because you were perfected in Christ. That's our goal. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. There is a connection between the word testimony and witness. There's a connection between the word witness and martyr. And you can think of martyr as what happens at the end of your life. I think you get martyred because of all of the events that led up to that day in your life. See, when you carry his name as a testimony, when you're knocking down Dagon in your own life, when you are splitting rivers in your own life, when the city walls are falling in your own life, others will hate God's testimony. They will want to throw it to the ground. And they'll want to kill you. Which is why we need His Spirit, His finger, inscribing it into our life. The testimony in this passage is the life that you live after receiving the blood of the Lamb. Not before it. Not that you got saved, but that you are still being saved, still receiving his image, still being chiseled to perfection. I have really two more scriptures for you. And hearing all that you've heard, I'm hoping that you still have the patience to apply them to your heart. 1 Corinthians 2.1 When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. This is a testimony that he witnessed with his eyes. It's a testimony that he experienced. It's a testimony he had, was, and continued to experience. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear 
and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Like Israel, you are being chiseled or crucified into a demonstration of the Spirit's power. A testimony of God that is greater than your weakness, fear, and trembling. If you cannot acknowledge your weakness, cannot come to grips with your fear, cannot acknowledge your trembling, then how on earth can God have a testimony in you? What's wrong with us? We view our testimony as complete the day that we came into Christ. We even use the kind of erroneous speech that says, oh no, I've ruined my testimony. I love you. I know some of you have been in the Lord longer than me. You say that, you're wrong. Stop doing it. You build a testimony when you've made a mistake. You don't ruin a testimony. This is a tragic consequence of bad preaching that was accepted by every generation before us. If you ruined your testimony with a sin, all of your testimonies are already in the garden. It's just that we know about some of them and we don't know about others. That brother really ruined his testimony. If his life's not over, it's not done yet. Come on, man. If your life's not over, it's not done yet. You haven't ruined it. You've just found one more area. You need God's spirit and power to inscribe on you his testimony. That brother really ruined his testimony. So did you when you said it. Shut up. How about you pray? How about you ask God to give him the grace to overcome it? And we're not talking about a man who refuses to admit that he's, he's made a mistake. We're going to help you admit that you've made the mistake. The whole congregation, if we have to. But the whole goal is that God's testimony would be complete in you, not that you would have a ruined testimony. Which really brings me to Acts 1.8. Could we put that on the screen? Do you remember in John 14.12, Jesus said, you'll do even greater things than these? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you or the finger of God comes on you. Remember, they're synonymous. But you will receive power when the finger of God comes on you and you will be my testimony or witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, God is able to reinscribe you by His Spirit again and He will use your body like an acacia box and He will move that testimony of His greatness into every city that you go into. That is the beauty of God's plan. He didn't promise this to us first. He promised this to His people first. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God wants his testimony perfected in you. That's what he wants. And he's willing to re-inscribe you again. Have you failed Did you get it right three weeks ago and then lost it a few days later? And then you got it right again and then lost it again? Am I the only one that gets on a treadmill that's unhealthy? Lord, I love him. I forgive him. I am so sorry. But now I'm angry with him, Lord, and I want to hurt him. 
We say out loud, mold us into the image of Christ that we would be the living, breathing, walking Torah in this place. 